My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Sheena Wilson. Most of us, or at least most of us who are not preoccupied with fantasies that deny the science of it all, recognize that addressing the climate crisis will at a minimum require technical changes related to burning less fossil fuel. Many of us recognize that it will probably also have some sort of impact on our individual consumption and ways of living. And at least some of us have a sense that really doing these things, really reducing emissions in a substantive enough way to avert the more terrible consequences of a climate crisis that is already underway, will require something more. System change, not climate change, the slogan goes. It's a common enough idea, but in our complex world shaped so powerfully by settler colonialism and capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy and all the rest, we're still mostly just figuring out what it really means. Sheena Wilson grew up in Alberta, and much of her family works in agriculture and in the oil industry. Today, she's a professor of media, communications, and cultural studies at the University of Alberta. Among other things, she serves as the co-director of the Petrocultures Research Group, which brings together researchers who work on questions related to the social, cultural, and political implications of oil and energy use. In doing this work, the Petrocultures Group has played an important role in creating the area of interdisciplinary study called Energy Humanities. An important premise of Wilson's work and of the energy humanities is that a society's energy system is integral to everything about how that society works. We currently live in a petroculture, and everything from our economic relations to our political system to how our communities are socially organized to the ways that power works at all sorts of different levels are shaped by our reliance on fossil fuels. And all of us are implicated in this. While there may be good reasons to make this or that individual choice around fossil fuel consumption, we cannot undo our complicity in petroculture through such choices. It requires system change. And not just change to our energy systems, but to everything else as well. Wilson's own work focuses on feminist issues, decolonization, and other questions of power as they pertain to energy systems and transitions. One of the many initiatives that she leads is called Just Powers, quote, an interdisciplinary and community-engaged network of research projects focused on climate justice issues and on creating socially just approaches to energy transition and more livable futures for all, end quote. Just Powers brings together scholars from a range of disciplines, as well as community organizations, indigenous communities, and others to discuss and engage in research and action on related issues. One kind of project under the Just Powers umbrella involves helping communities think through making changes in their energy systems in really grounded local ways. Another Just Powers project is called Speculative Energy Futures, and it works to bring together research and arts practices to spark new ways of understanding and intervening in the social and cultural impacts of energy transition. IDOC is a project that uses video interviews with activists, engineers, scholars, policy analysts, and more to document and further catalyze discussions related to energy transition. 
Feminist Energy Futures seeks to record and build feminist knowledge related to environmental justice and energy transitions, and so on. Wilson warns that while it is urgent that we shift away from fossil fuels, we have to recognize what that requires and what it can and can't accomplish. No energy system is inherently just, so a shift away from fossil fuels to some other source of energy will not automatically lead to greater social and environmental justice. Energy transition will come sooner or later, whether we want it to or not, but just energy transition, that is, energy transition that will truly address the crises that we face rather than just shifting the burden around, will only happen if we work deliberately, collectively, and consciously across our diverse movements to make it so. I speak with Wilson about the ways that so much of our social world is bound up with our energy systems, about the Just Powers Project, and about what climate justice activists can learn from the energy humanities. My name is Sheena Wilson. I'm a professor at the University of Alberta. I actually work at the Francophone faculty and campus in Edmonton. Lots of people don't realize there's a big Francophone campus. And I work on issues related to social justice and human rights and energy and energy transition. About a decade ago, with one of my colleagues, I started an international research group called Petrocultures that has really taken off. Sometimes I say that Petrocultures gave birth to the energy humanities discipline. My work specifically is very focused on feminist issues, decolonization, indigenization, and such. And I also run a large national project called Just Powers. And on Just Powers, there are several pillar projects under that that are funded in their own rights, but they all kind of interconnect and interweave. A younger generation of scholars is actually studying in programs and disciplines and coming up with PhDs in the energy humanities. But of course, these things didn't exist at the time when I went to grad school. And so I really came to this through my interest and expertise in human rights abuses. I'm a scholar of Canadian media and history and literature, and I previously studied how human rights abuses would be represented over time, first by the state and then by the communities that had been affected, and I would follow those trajectories. I'm actually from Alberta originally, and now I teach at the University of Alberta, and there were a lot of documentaries coming out about the oil sands and the tar sands and Indigenous communities and farmers and all sorts of people noticing the impacts of the tar sands extraction and industrialization of northern Alberta. And so I started to watch those through the lens of human rights issues. And a lot of my work also focused on feminist filmmakers and women's voices and marginalized voices in these issues. And so I came to energy and energy transition really as a human rights issue. Here in Alberta, being from Alberta, being from a family that largely consists of oilmen and farmers, I understood the complexities of these problems. And I also understood the intercultural tensions and relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities. And that really, we were all going to be left with the outcomes of what is a boom and bust cycle now, but will eventually be the ruins of the industrial moment. That is how I came to be very interested and very passionate about helping communities that I understand think through what it means to transition. Because the thinking that needs to happen here in Alberta, it's not only about thinking about how you transition from oil, for example, to solar, but it's also about thinking through what that means in terms of social justice and relationships with different kinds of communities and how we work together. Lay out a bit more of the context for listeners about what exactly the energy humanities are, and about the ways in which they're premised on the recognition that our energy system permeates and plays a role in shaping social organization and culture and all of the other aspects of our social world. The premise of the energy humanities is that energy systems shape the communities that organize around them, whatever that energy system is. 
And we right now live in a global petroculture. And when I say petroculture, I mean cultures that are entirely shaped by the economic relations, power relations, and social relations of how we've organized ourselves around this very intensive fossil fuel form of power. Sometimes people think, for example, like, oh, we'll replace oil with solar and then it will be somehow more inherently just. Well, no, that's not true. There's nothing actually inherently wrong with oil. It is the way we've organized power structures around it. Oil, for example, is hard to extract, requires lots of industrialization and can happen very far from where we use it. And it's also very energy intensive. So that creates a certain kind of power relation. You know, industry has to extract it. There's a very different relationship when a community, for example, can put in some solar panels and own that portion of the grid or exist off the networked grid. I often say, who owns power? What is it powering? Who is the power for? And what are the benefits back to the community? society is organized in a particular way right now around oil, and nobody is outside of this. Sometimes people like to pull up these things like, oh, you flew here, or you did this, or you did that. There is nobody on this planet that is living outside of a petroculture, but there are some people certainly who have benefited way more from it and who live way more intensive lives. But you know, our clothing, our furniture, our houses, everything is made of oil. And it goes beyond that too. It's also the way our political systems are organized. They're very much organized around fossil fuel and what it does when it powers our communities. I just like to eliminate that idea that anybody's outside of it. We're all completely implicated in this. And so there's no need to worry about hypocrisy. People feel a little bit embarrassed or like not right saying anything about it because they recognize that they're implicated. Maybe they work in the industry or maybe they realize they drive to work every day or whatever it is. What I say is that these systems were all set up this way. We live in these systems. We need to change the systems. We all need to do our part and bring our talents and passions to the movements that are trying to change these systems that are calling on our governments to create more, you know, say, train systems and public transportation and other ways of getting around. Forget about the guilt. It's not helping anybody. It does nothing. Just get involved and let's try to think differently about how life might organize. And my own personal work actually is really invested in thinking about how we cling to the way things are with this sometimes very deep belief that we're living such great lives and we want to keep them, we want to hang on to them. But I point out to many people, there's lots of sociological work that talks about how women work more now in the 21st century than they ever have in the history of the world. We work inside the home. We work outside the home. Our homes are, you know, full of objects. The average home used to have something like 70 objects. Now our houses have hundreds of thousands of objects in them that need to be organized. And life is very busy and very hectic and it's moving at a kind of pace. And we, you know, respond to emails at night when we're home from work and all of these things are part of that intensive fossil fueled life. And we could have really great lives if we just reorganized how we live. So I just think there's a lot of things that could be rethought. And I like to say, what can be gained from an energy transition? There are lots of things to be gained from just powering down. And I also point out that we've actually doubled the carbon load of the planet since 1990. I remember living in 1990 and it wasn't so dramatically different from now. And so, gee, what are all the things increasing that carbon load? Why is life so much more carbon intensive now? Why are we polluting so much more now? And when you when you start drilling down, 
I think some of the transitions, people are very fearful of the unknown and people you know, worry we're going to have to go back to horse and buggy or something and have these very dramatic ideas. But there are lots of ways that we could power down. And the people who benefit most from excessive spending of carbon, if we want to put it that way, are a few very wealthy people and a few very wealthy corporations that are making sure that we transition as slowly as possible so every last dollar can be made off fossil fuels climate change is here and it's been here for a while. And so change is coming regardless. We can either respond to it and be more resilient when it gets here, or we can continue to you know, put our heads in the sand. And then we're not going to be very resilient to changing economics, changing demand, and to different kinds of changes coming from the environment. Tell me more about the Just Powers Project. The Just Powers Project is a project very invested in thinking about more just futures and about what it would mean to take this moment of energy transition to transition not only our, you know, power infrastructures, right? So our fuels, but also our relations of power so that we might all actually live better, more equitable, more socially just lives. As somebody who has studied human rights abuses and social justice for the entirety of my career, this is also a moment to remake our relationships and to say, hey, this wasn't a very glowing moment in the history of the world. We really set up a lot of extreme disparity. Yes, we have good standards of living, but there's a lot of injustice. And I think specifically about Canada because I think that energy transition is largely local. It's local because there are a number of different factors, culture being one of them, also the geographies of places, what's available when we start thinking about drawing energy from the resources closest to us, but how also do the social relations transform around those systems and who owns that? So for example, I'm very invested in helping communities think through how they create community networked or district energy systems. I'm working with La Cité Francophone in the Bonnie Dune neighborhood here in Edmonton. We're running a project about how we would take our very beautiful La Cité Francophone. It's a large Francophone community center. That building is not terribly energy efficient and it's getting old. So we're consulting with the stakeholders in the community, thinking about what it would look like to align that building and that neighborhood with the Paris Agreement goals of trying to keep global warming below 1.5. And when you get the community talking about it and they see it happening in their neighborhood, and maybe they even become part of it because their homes can be networked to a district energy system. I mean, we don't know where this will go or what people want from it because it is a genuine consultation in which we're hearing from the community what they would like. You know, then people begin to think that there are more possibilities they can really become part of an energy transition in a different type of way. So Just Powers, like lots of its pillar projects, brings together really interdisciplinary expertise. We have people from across the country, and we're also quite focused on Alberta, just because this is where most of us are located. And we have scholars from across the disciplines, and we also have relationships with many community organizations and within Indigenous communities and nations. And so we bring all of these groups together to think meaningfully about what it means to respond to climate change through energy transition. Climate change is so large. You know, there's a scholar called Timothy Morton. He talks about it as a hyper object. We can barely grab onto it. We can't understand it. We hear about it every day in the news and it just feels too amorphous and you don't know what to do. But energy transition is very material. Energy systems themselves are material. They're on the ground and people can organize around them, around how you put them into place physically and, you know, how you upskill people to maintain them and around the politics and policies that mean that they either feed into the grid or they're off grid and what all of that means for either making communities more stable or perhaps destabilizing a larger municipal grid, for example, right? There's a lot of complexities there. So we think through those things and we think about taking back the ownership of the power system so that the communities receive the profit 
profit from that. And I like to think of them more as benefits too, right? How do you reinvest in your community? Another pillar project is speculative energy futures. We just had our first proto art exhibition. We think of this as an iterative project. It's based on research creation, which means that we're making art and public facing projects, but they aren't art in the typical representative way that sometimes people think about it. We're really thinking meaningfully about how do you engage communities through these representations. And so creating these installations is done by scientists and artists and engineers and Indigenous folks, for example, coming together. We currently have the show up. It's called Prototypes for Possible Worlds. And we will take that team to COP26 in Glasgow. Uh, That's the next United Nations Climate Change Conference. Aimed to influence policymakers that are there thinking about climate policy. One thing I say is that we don't need another graph or chart to convince people that climate change is real or that we need to address climate change because we've had graphs and charts, you know, starting in the 60s. In one of the installations, for example, a very well-known Canadian augmented reality media scholar named Caitlin Fisher from York University worked with one of the lead modeling engineers on the huge Canada First Research Excellence funded projects called Future Energy System. And Evan Davis is one of the head modeling engineers on that. And so they worked together with a third artist and one of the artists painted a triptych, like a three-part large painting. But then you take the augmented reality piece that goes with it, you pick up the iPad and you hold it up and suddenly you see the charts for the socioeconomic sustainability goals come to life and you walk through these graphs and then the waters start to rise and things start to happen in the pictures that help people imagine and literally see what happens under climate change. Another project that I worked on, we were a pretty large team by the end and we talked to a lot of elders and we talked to Indigenous legal experts and other people and we created an installation that just tries to engage with the intersections, we call it convergences, between what we might think of as feminist or socially just futures and where those intersect with Indigenous ways of thinking about the future. And there's many different installations. There's a storybook for children, kind of loosely based on the Lorax, and it's called Planet for Sale. And it's about the characters trying to sort of spin the planet and try to sell the planet after we've completely destroyed it. And it's toxic, right? So what is this idea of private property that we've given such privileged place in our ways of thinking success and thinking the world when at the end of the day, the planet is becoming toxic because we're not caring for it. We're not living in relationship to the ecosystems that we're part of and other species and the bugs and vegetation and other people in very thoughtful and caring ways. I also have a large project called iDoc. It's a media project. We're creating a large media archive. I've interviewed well over 100 people in the last couple of years that are in the energy sectors, and that's everything from climate justice activists to engineers working on new technologies to people working in the political bureaucracies and trying to create policy around energy transition and climate resilience. How do you think about the implications and importance of building relationships between people who are situated in universities and people who are engaged with these issues in other ways and other places? One of my theoretical arguments that I make in my academic research and that I then try to mobilize and live in my real community-engaged research and life is that part of the problem is the way we have organized knowledge systems. We declared certain things, objective, real knowledge, you know, things that belonged in the academy, for example, and then we divided them up into a number of different disciplines and faculties. In governments, we had all of these different ministries that don't really speak well to each other. And this is part of the problem. And there are systems that were created that really gatekeep and make sure certain kinds of knowledge aren't in the academy, aren't taken as seriously. 
And so I argue that really what we have here is a knowledge crisis and that we really need to rethink what knowledge is. And so I very genuinely think there is a lot of knowledge in different kinds of communities and that we need to, first of all, acknowledge that as what it is. And then we need to start sharing it and archiving it and where we can recovering it because lots of these kinds of knowledges are being lost. And I think of the knowledge is held by the bodies of women, the knowledge is held by people of color and Indigenous peoples. These have all been largely kept out of the academy and out of government and out of the halls of power. And so how do you reintegrate those and how do we have a more balanced way of thinking about problems in general? You know, the last number of years, we hear a lot about equity, diversity and inclusion, and there's a big push for this. And there's all sorts of research that shows that it actually improves the kinds of not only solutions, but questions that are being asked when you get a number of different kinds of voices around the table. So I take that very seriously in the work that we do. We take back out into community. You know, we try to invite the community into the university. But I mean, the climate movement is really being led by the youth these days. So how do we make sure that the voices of the youth are heard, what they want is heard? How do we take seriously the knowledge of elders in Indigenous communities that understand the land and understand science and systems of science in ways that weren't previously recognized or acknowledged? And like, how do we take seriously even the knowledge of how to live in a domestic home without such high intensive carbon footprint? I mean, how do you make a lunch with no petrochemicals, no plastics, anything? Even these ways of cooking and living our everyday lives so we're not creating so much waste and garbage. These kinds of things are being lost. And certainly my grandma who died last year at 100, she lived through this whole energy boom. She understands well how to do these things. So I think there's a lot of knowledge that we need to really valorize that has been brushed under the rug and that has been declared unnecessary or irrelevant to the issue. And even now that we see that many cities are calling for climate emergency, and what I'm calling for is climate justice and energy justice in a time of climate emergency, because often in an emergency, that becomes an excuse to run roughshod over people's rights. Consultation gets pushed to the side. And what we really need is to act urgently, but also thoughtfully step back for a second and think together and make sure that we have everybody contributing, that everybody feels that they do have a voice and that if they take the time to be part of this thinking, that it will be meaningfully integrated or represented in the outcomes. How do we act differently at this moment of crisis and come together and organize as opposed to respond in the ways that are very, very useful for the infrastructures of power, which are to sort of hunker down and separate and become isolated because we're so caught up in a survival mode in our single family homes, paying all of our you know, individual bills and you know, meeting the needs of our individual families. How has it shaped this work that so much of it is happening in the Alberta context? One thing that I think is interesting about doing this work in Alberta is often from the outside, people think that Alberta has, you know, one identity and that Albertans are pro-oil and pro-pipeline and all of these things that they see are represented by the provincial governments or in the national discourse. But actually, it's an extremely interesting place to be because we're at a site of major tension. And I think some of the activism and on-the-ground organizing and even daily citizens, their awareness of these things is actually very sophisticated. And it's actually a great place to do this work, whether you're working on transition or you're more invested in maintaining the status quo because it is a site of very interesting tension in the country. And I'd again just remind everyone that nobody's outside of this. I mean, you know, everybody in Canada certainly benefits from the Alberta oil sector. I mean, you know, I don't work in the oil sector, but certainly I benefit from it in many different kinds of ways, as we all do, right? We're all implicated. It just happens to be somebody's place of employment. 
And so it has certainly shaped the way we think about these things, but I think often in very interesting ways that we can share with other communities across the country. And then, of course, we're very open to listening to what other people are doing and to sharing solidarities with different communities working on related but different energy projects, whether that's the ones most supported by their governments or transition projects that are maybe getting less support these days. What important learnings would you draw from your work for climate justice organizers and for other people working towards a just energy transition? The first important lesson is that communities organize around the energy systems that power them, period. So this is a very important, crucial ingredient to what makes our social economic systems work, right? And it also organizes our relationships of power. But also, too, I would really remind people that whatever the energy system it is still using natural resources in all the negative ways. It might be using less of them. It might be using them in a different way. But all energy projects happen on the land, for example. And so if we're talking about energy transition at a time just after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, at a time when we're thinking about reconciliation, you know, solar is not inherently just. Wind farms are not inherently just. They all happen on the land. So those things need to be thought about. The other issue is that They all take resources. So even if the minerals and the materials for a solar panel aren't being extracted from our communities in Northern Alberta, they're being extracted from somebody's community. So mining is still taking place. So the idea is we need to be thoughtful about whatever energy systems we're moving to, both in terms of what they materially demand from the environment, what they release into the environment, and what that means for communities around the world globally. And that we just need to use less energy, use less resources, and live in more meaningful relationship with the things we're using and be less wasteful at every turn, whether that's an energy system or the way we buy our groceries and tons of plastic and throw it in a landfill. So no energy system is inherently just. And I think also just listen meaningfully to other people. Listen and work together and find solidarities. I talk often about how we've had many, many different movements over the last number of years. So people might be invested in, you know, class issues. They might be invested in feminism. They might be concerned about racial issues and all of those intersectionality issues. They might be invested in completely other things. They might just really be worried about the environment, period. But people need to think meaningfully about where their solidarities lie and how those things can join people. Because very oftentimes it functions very well for the systems of power if where the divergences happen, there is tension and division created, right? Lots of times environmental groups don't think about place and space in the same ways that Indigenous communities do, for example. And so people need to think together and talk together and find out where their solidarities lie and in that way find the best way forward. So lots of different people are pushing lots of different agendas, and I think that it will all work best if we listen more meaningfully to each other, listen to each other's fears and anxieties, think about what might be possible and probable for everybody, and make people feel more secure and less precarious. And to understand that, you know, the planet has gotten to a certain point where it is changing and it would be very arrogant as humans to think that we could stop that. But as more challenges happen, it would be really great if our communities had come together around these sorts of projects and in doing so created better and stronger community relationships that have eroded over the last number of decades in an increasingly neoliberal world and at least live better together in community. You have been listening to my interview with Professor Sheena Wilson of the University of Alberta. To learn more about the Petrocultures Research Group, go to petrocultures.com. And to learn more about the Just Powers Initiative and its associated projects, go to justpowers.ca. 
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>